Amen, everyone. Welcome. My name is Doug Brown. I'm the high school pastor here, and I'd like to say Happy Mother's Day to you all. Give our families who uh, dedicated their children today a big round of applause. And likewise, give our mothers a big round of applause. Happy Mother's Day. Mother's Day is an interesting day. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate women, to celebrate mothers. But to understand Mother's Day fully, you have to understand the context in which mothering generally takes place. And that is kids. And kids are crazy. If you've never been around kids for very long, you will realize that they are crazy little buggers. If you come to VBS, you will realize they're loud little human beings, and they're all over the place. We live in this apartment complex that's really wonderful. There's tons of kids everywhere. It's like the kids like, are running the place, it feels like. It's the Lord of the Flies. But, we, but living there is really wonderful. Sometimes we'll have our front door open, and a kid will walk in, and kids do weird things, if you've ever been around them for, for long enough. You know, they'll walk in, and they, they pick up a vase off your table, and you think to yourself, small human, what are you going to do with that little vase? And they take it, and then they throw it into your TV as hard as you, they can. And you're thinking, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And it, they don't know why. This is just the type of thing that kids do. If you ask them, they go, I don't know, I'm just a kid, and this is the stuff that we do. Or sometimes you'll do something that seems to make them happy, but they get really sad. And I don't know why this happens. It's a phenomenon. You'll, you'll ask them, young child, what would you like me to make you for your lunch today at school. And they say, I would like a peanut butter and honey sandwich because that's, I used to eat peanut butter and honey sandwiches. I really have a problem with jelly. Uh, but I want a peanut butter and honey. And they'll say, okay, I want peanut butter and honey. And you begin to make that peanut butter and honey sandwich. And then you look over and they've fallen to their knees and they're crying. I want a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And you think to yourself, yes, that's what I'm making you right now. I'm doing the thing that you want. And they start to cry more. Why? I just want a sandwich. And you think, they've lost their mind. I'm doing that right now. And you ask them and they say, yeah, I'm a kid. This is just the things that we do. It's weird. I know. So kids are bizarre and mothers are entrenched in that. I've had a wonderful example of mothers in my mom. And my mom was a wonderful woman, and she loved me unconditionally and raised me. I have a wonderful mother-in-law. And when I met my wife and we thought, we want to be a mother and a father, we realized that the depth of motherhood goes beyond uh, maybe what you think it means. Mother's Day sometimes is a, it's an opportunity to see the reality of the world that you have, and maybe it didn't turn out the way you want it. If you guys don't know, my wife and I are not able to biologically have kids. And that for us was a really difficult thing. The long journey of infertility was really tough for us. And throughout those years, coming to church on Mother's Day, it was a celebration, but also a window into the pain that we were experiencing too. So now we have this wonderful baby boy who's four and he's awesome and we adopted him a while back and he's the most wonderful blessing we've ever had. And my wife is a wonderful mother to this little boy. And it made me realize that the depth of what it means to be a mother is more than just giving birth and more than just raising kids. 
all of us, women, all of, all of you have mothering deep within you. I grew up here at Calvary. Some of you even were a mother to me as I grew up, and you had to scream at me, get off the roof, what are you doing, you know, and crawling around over there. And as our community, we mother each other. We guide our young ones. It's a perfect example of what happened today of people dedicating their kids to say, we as a community are going to be maternal towards these kids. But I understand, and I want to take a break even before we move on, to speak to the variety of different ways in which mothering affects us. And I want to thank you. I want to praise the women and the mothers in this room. And to do that, I want to read you something that speaks really to the broad nature of the people who are here, and I want to be able to speak into your lives. So hear this and realize this. This is what we have to say. To those who gave birth this year, to their first child, we celebrate you. To those who lost the child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointments, we walk with you and forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make it any harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm, close relationships with your children, we celebrate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mother this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of their own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and overall testing of motherhood, we are better off for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering of your own, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you want it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envision lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who have emptier nests in the coming year, we grieve with you and rejoice with you. <laughs> to those who place children up for adoption, we commend you and your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and unexpected, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. So give all of our mothers a big round of applause. <laughs> Mother's Day awards us an opportunity to take a break from our current series that we're in, in Mark, and we are going to talk about something completely different. We are going to talk about women. And we're going to look at this phrase, that God is like a woman. That's right, God is like a woman. When we look at women, when we look at motherhood, when we look at the maternal images in the Bible that speak about God, we learn something new about God. If we look at women, we can see that God has created them uniquely, and in their uniqueness, and in their stories, and in their lives, they point to and paint a reality of God that is good for us to know. Today we are going to look at a specific story where we can see through 
these women in this story that they reveal something true about God and they reveal something about our Christian life. But I want to first begin to just paint a picture that God is like a woman. There are many images in the Bible that speak of God acting as a woman would act. Sometimes there are maternal images in the animal kingdom that we see. That God is like a mother hen or like a, a mama bear. But also God paints a picture that he is close as a mother is close to her child. So take a look at these images with us. First, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just paint the picture for you. In Matthew chapter 23, it says this. Jesus says, How often I wanted to gather your children together. Speaking about Israel. I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen, a mother hen, gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were unwilling. God speaks, Jesus speaks of God and himself like a mother hen, I wanted to grab you all. This is what mother hens do. They grab their chicks and they them under their wings. I've never actually seen it happen, but I have it on good authority that this is what happens. They them under their wings like this, right? But God is not only this mother hen that gathers her chicks. God is like a mama bear who says, don't you dare hurt my children. I will lash out and I will get you. It says this in Hosea. In Hosea. Chapter 13, verse 8, says, I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chest. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them apart. God is not only gathering us, he's protecting us, like a mama bear protects her cubs, like a lioness devours those who try to attack their children. God is like that. And even more, like I said, like a mother and child, in Isaiah 49, verse 15, it says this about women. Can a, woman, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. God is saying that even women who have their child on their chest so close, God says, I am closer. They may forget, but even I will not forget. So God gives us this image that through women and through maternal images, we can see more of what God is like. But to be clear, God is not, God the Father, the Godhead, is not a woman. God the Father is not a man. We say God the Father to represent a non-gender being that represents God the Father. So it would be inappropriate for us to say God is a man or God is a woman. There is Jesus, the Son, who was in the flesh a man. But for us to say God is a woman is wrong. God is a man is wrong. But male and female images of God illuminate more of what God is like. So for today, on Mother's Day, we are going to look into a case where women show us a dramatic picture of what God is like and how we can challenge ourselves to be more like that. So I'm going to take you beside a river. All right, so open up your bulletins if you have it. You will see in there an outline and a diagram of a river. <clears throat> We're going to look at three women in the story of Exodus. Exodus 2, that give us a wonderful picture of who God is and what we ought to be doing in our Christian life. So in Exodus 2, let me set the scene for you. We are beside a river, in a kingdom beside a river, the mighty Nile River in Egypt. And we have a kingdom that is within a kingdom, the kingdom of Egypt, the pharaoh at the top, but also the kingdom 
in the people group of the Hebrews within them. They're being used as labor. They're growing. If you know the story is that the Hebrew nation came to live within the, the Egyptian nation and they're growing. They're getting more and more people, bigger and bigger, <clears throat> to the point where Pharaoh says, look at all these Hebrew people. Get, there's so many of them. The men are so vast and they're so big, they're going to outnumber us. So Pharaoh makes a horrible decision. In an act of hate, he says, here's what I want you to do. Midwives, Egyptian midwives, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Hebrew nation and when they give birth to baby boys, I want you to destroy them, to kill them. But if they're girls, they, you can let them live. The midwives are really smart. And they say, yeah, totally, that's what we're going to do. But they somehow always arrive late to the scene and miss the baby boys. They report back to Pharaoh, you know what? The Nile <clears throat> had a lot of traffic on it today. We were going. We missed it. So a lot of these baby boys are being born but the problem is they now live in gripping fear. The mothers who are bearing boys are living in fear. Could you imagine giving birth to a child, not knowing what that child's going to be, a boy or a girl? The baby comes out and you say, please don't let it be a little boy because now I'll have to know, I'll have to figure out what to do and live in fear. And they say, it's a boy and you're crushed because you know that the kingdom that you're living in is there to destroy that little baby that you've just given birth to. Maybe a midwife shows up, you know, looks the other way. What are you supposed to do? It's not like you can just move out of town. It's not like you can hide the child forever. This is the situation we find ourselves in. A baby boy is born to a Hebrew woman in the midst of a kingdom that's there to kill baby boys. What is going to happen? Read with me. In Exodus 2, verse 1, we have the beginning of our story. <clears throat> now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. This is going to be a Hebrew baby. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. I remember when I was reading this when I was younger, I always thought, well, what if the baby was like really ugly, you know? Would she have been like, oh... Then they bore him, they conceived a son, and he was really, just not really good looking. So they gave, they didn't really care. No, that's not what that means. She bore a son and saw that it was beautiful. It means it was a fine child, a healthy child, a wonderful blessing from God, and a problem. What do we do? Read with me again in verse 3. But uh, it says this again in verse 2. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. You can hide a child for three months. But after three months, the screams get louder, the cries get louder. You're having to keep this child away from everything, tucked away in a back room when they wake up in the middle of the night. Don't let anyone know that this is a boy. Don't let anyone know what's going on. But after three months, this woman makes a brave decision. <clears throat> in verse 3, But when she could know, when she could hide him no longer, she got him in a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. This woman, Jochebed, is Moses' mother. The baby is Moses. The baby is Moses, 
And Jochebed, his mother, makes a brave decision. She says, I can hide this child no longer. So I will create a basket. I will cover it with tar and pitch and make it a flotation device. And I'll put the baby in this basket. And what I'll do is I'll set it out among the Nile. That's not a death sentence. The Nile was huge, and on its banks there were reeds. And it just meant that this child would go on to where? Who knows? But Jochebed, Moses' mother, had to make a brave decision. That God had anointed her to make this decision, and she sends the child off. And as she sends the child to go on, we pick up another character, another woman in this story. Moses' sister, Miriam. It says this, read with me, in verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. So they don't know. Miriam crouched over by the reeds, wondering what is going to go on. They see the baby drift out. Miriam says, I'm going to follow it. I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know what's going to happen. In verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile while her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid. And she brought it to her. I always read this and I think, wonderful. Moses is in the little basket. He's going off into the Nile. Someone's found him. Great. I wonder what Miriam was thinking. She sees the basket drifting. Will 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 a farmer find it? Will an officer find it? Will a soldier find it? You see the daughter of Pharaoh coming down to bathe in the Nile, and you think, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I have no idea. Is she going to tell her dad? Is she going to tell the guards? Is she going to scream and realize what's going on here and call someone, and this is the end for this baby? Miriam is right there, engaged in the story. And as the basket comes to Pharaoh's daughter, this is what happens. In verse 6, when she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, this is the one of the Hebrew children. Miriam is right there. She runs up. Here I am. And she asks the Pharaoh's daughter, hey, what is that that you found there? That's weird. I have no idea. And says this in verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter says this, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Moses' sister asks Pharaoh's daughter, you need someone to help you nurse this child. I'll go get one of the Hebrew women. She runs back, gets her mom, runs in the door. Mom, you have no idea what happened. I followed the basket. It went over to this thing. You don't even, just follow me. Come on. And she's like, where are we going to see the Pharaoh's daughter? I'm totally in trouble. And she says, hey, I found this Hebrew child. Will you raise it for me? And she's got to be holding back tears and saying, yeah. And then Pharaoh's daughter says this. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Not only did Jochebed send out Moses, not knowing where he would land, Miriam followed him. Miriam got her, brought her back. Now she's going to get paid for just nursing the child. This is a win-win situation because of the bravery of Moses' mom, because of Miriam's engagement. Moving forward, in verse 10, the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew you 
out of the water. You have a, an amazing story of three women, both engaging in the story of God to put forward a miraculous event that saves and prolongs and moves forward the kingdom of Israel, which moves forward the story of God. And we're going to look at those three women today. So if you're on your river, on your outline, move forward with me. We're going to look at Jochebed. The first thing that we need to learn from this is, her, is Jochebed's bravery. Through her, she reveals something about God. That not only is Jochebed brave, but God is brave. As she willingly lets go of the basket to let the child go forward, she has to make a brave decision, knowing that God has blessed her, blessed her nation, and that God will preserve them and help them. And as she lets go of this basket, it's not a moment of letting go, of giving up, of not caring. It's a moment of active bravery to let go. And that reveals to us something about God. And that is that God is brave. God is truly brave. In 1 John, it says this. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, God makes a decision with his own child. It says this. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. God, in an act of active bravery, says, I will send my son into the world. But as we know, Jesus is God. So in a way, God says, I will step into the world. My son will step into the world and be a sacrifice for you. We will I will love you, God says. Jesus says, I will give up my life for you. An act of bravery, stepping into the situation to say, I know that this is going to go bad for me. I know that I will be killed for this, but I will actively be in it and love you and go to the cross in bravery. We can learn from that. It challenges us. us. If God is like that, if Jochebed is like that, we ought to be like that. We ought to be brave in our decision-making. To be perfectly honest, we live in Orange County, and we live in a way that it's easy to fall into these grooves. We have a million things to keep us safe. We have a million things to make sure our, our decisions and our risks are minimal. But I want to challenge you because this story challenges us. God challenges us to be brave with our decisions. So be brave with your children. You know, Matthew sometimes will say, Dad, I want to go climb that tree that overhangs the freeway over there. And I say, go with God, my son. He will protect you. <laughs> no, I don't do that. But it is true when I think about my son's life. It's true when I think about my life. Where will he go? Where will I go? What will it be like when he gets older? The decisions that he makes. What will the decisions that I make? I have to constantly challenge myself to think about the kingdom of God. To think about what God wants me to do and be brave with the actions that I take and the decisions that I make. To let go to let God take control, and to be actively brave in my decision-making. Moving on, we learn that God is brave. And our next story is this, is that Miriam, Miriam is engaged in this story. I love Miriam in this story. If you go back to Exodus, let's just read a little part of where she's at. It says this in Exodus 2, verse 2. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. Exodus 2, verse 4. 
His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him, and then jump down to verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women so that she may nurse your child? I love Miriam in this. Not only is Miriam just saying, Mom, you're making a brave decision. Great idea. I'm terrified. I'm going to go hide back in the house. She says, No. Okay, Mom. You're gonna, okay, this is what's going to happen. She's there watching. She's watching to see what's going to happen to the basket. As the basket starts to drift down the river, She's following it, walking alongside, looking everywhere where it's going. She sees Pharaoh's daughter coming down to bathe. She sees all of the maids, and she thinks, oh, my word, what is going to happen? Is this going to be terrible? Is this going to end badly for Moses, my baby brother? And as she's getting closer, she sees Pharaoh's daughter grab the basket. And as Pharaoh's daughter brings the basket in, I wonder what Miriam's thinking. Is she thinking, I'm going to have to jump in? Because if she picks up the baby and says, ah, this is a Hebrew child. Get the guards. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Get the guards. Is Miriam going to jump in and shove the basket off? Is she going to jump on top of it? Is she going to fight Pharaoh's daughter? What's happening here? She's so close. And as the basket gets closer, Miriam gets closer. And as she lifts it up, Miriam is right there. And as she has compassion on the child, Miriam's the first one to talk. Can I get you a Hebrew woman to care for that child? She's right there. She's engaged in the story. She's not off on the side watching from afar. She's right there. And from Miriam and her engagement into this story, we learn that God is engaged. God is not watching from afar this story of humanity unfold. God is in it with us. In Philippians chapter 2, it says this, Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who also, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is not far away. Jesus is engaged in our story. What it means for God to empty himself and to be found in the likeness of man is that means God the Son, in the Trinity, God the Son empties himself to be like a man. And what that means is that God did not get rid of parts of himself. It doesn't mean that he stopped being holy or that he stopped being powerful. What that means is for God to empty himself, God the Son, to empty himself and be like a man means that he came to serve us and to be under us and to help us and to die for us. God existed in a point of power, a point of holiness where we worshiped him. And he said, I will go and I will wash their feet. I will go and I will speak to them. I will love them. I will heal them. And when they put me to death, I will pray for them. God is engaged deeply into our story. He's engaged in your lives. So from Miriam, from Jesus, I call us to be engaged, to be engaged in our own lives, to be engaged in your children's lives, in your grandchildren's lives, to be engaged in your friends' lives, to be engaged in your own life. Do not watch from afar your life unfold. Be engaged in it. 
Care about the things that happen here at Calvary. Care about the things that happen in your friends' lives. I always say this, and I'll, I'll continue to say this, but sometimes at church, the way this works, is we, we say we have something going on. We need volunteers for this. Hey, to get this off the ground, we really need people to support this. We should not be the type of church that says, well, I really hope somebody does that. There's a table out in the lobby. Go out there, and we're like, yeah, I go out that door. So I was thinking about just not going to the table in the lobby. We should be the type of church that cares so deeply about what we're doing here, cares so deeply about our children, about the way we outreach to the community, about the way that we work in the world, that when something comes up, we jump at the opportunity and say, absolutely, where do we sign? I'm in. We need to be engaged. And like Pharaoh's daughter, we need to be compassionate in that. Pharaoh's daughter opens this basket. She could have responded in a number of ways. She could have freaked out. She could have called the guards. She could have screamed, what is this, a child? Instead, she has compassion. She brings the child near and says, find someone to nurse this child. I will adopt this child as my own. Give them everything I have, the right to my name, the right to the power and give them a full standing as my child. That's compassion. That's love. And what that teaches us is that regardless of who you're dealing with, regardless of their background, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what you think about them, people are the type of things that we should have compassion on. And more than anything else, children are the type of thing that we should have compassion on. When we see children, our hearts should be moved to compassion and love. It's a famous verse, but it speaks well to the compassion God had on us in John 3.16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God has compassion on us. We ought to be compassionate people. Compassionate in the way that we deal with children. Compassionate in the way that we see each other. In the way that we serve this church. So this story reminds us of these things. That we ought to be brave in our decisions. Because God is brave. We ought to be engaged in our lives. Because God is engaged. And we ought to be compassionate in the way we deal with people. Because God is compassionate. And all of this comes together perfectly on the cross. When Jesus hangs on the cross for us, as God the Son is hanging there, in a moment of being killed for loving us, for coming to save us, and to giving himself up for us, as we are putting him to death, and he's dying for our sins, God displays these things beautifully. God displays his bravery and that he hangs there in bravery for us. And as he's hanging there, he's engaged in our story. He's not afar. He's right there bleeding for us. And he's compassionate as he says these words hanging on a cross. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. But Jesus was saying this as he hung there on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. 
Jesus displays for us bravery, engagement, and compassion as he brings salvation to us. Let that be an encouragement for us. Let these women on Mother's Day be an encouragement to us that through maternal images, through womanhood, we can see images of what God is like. Let's celebrate, celebrate by praying a special blessing over all women in this room, and specifically mothers. So maybe, why don't we have all the mothers in the room go ahead and stand as Eric Wakeling, our senior pastor, prays a special blessing over us. Yeah, stand with me and, um, yeah, all women. Yeah. And then remain standing, and if we could all just have a heart of prayer, let's close our eyes, and I want to pray along the lines of that poem that Doug read earlier. I'm going to pray some of these over you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for the women in our lives. Lord, the ones that are mothers and the ones that are little sisters and the ones that are involved in the story in so many different ways. God, thank you for the amazing influence that they have on our lives, on the lives of the people around them, God. So we pray now for those that gave birth this year, Lord, and we do celebrate with them. We pray for them. We pray for those who lost a child. Lord, we pray for those who have experienced things like miscarriage and failed adoptions and infertility. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for those who are foster moms or stepping into situations where they are helping with kids who are not their own. God, I pray for those who have just great relationships with their kids right now. God, we celebrate that and pray that that would continue. We pray for those where there is divide or disappointment, God, or distance, and we pray for healing for them. We pray for those who have lost their moms, God, for your comfort for them. We pray for those who have experienced abuse, Lord. We pray for those who have aborted children, Lord. We pray for them. Lord, we pray for those who are single and long to be married, God. We pray, Lord, for your provision, but your hand upon them as well. We pray for those who are step-parents, Lord. We pray that you would Give them wisdom and freedom as they step into that role, Lord. We pray for those with grandchildren who are loving and caring for these children. Lord, we pray for those with empty nests. We pray for those who have placed their children up for adoption. Lord, we pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon them as well. And we pray for those who are pregnant with new life now. And we pray, Lord, for your care for them and for those children who are coming, God. And so we pray now for all of these moms and all of these women, Lord, a special blessing upon them, that you would sustain them, that you would give them what they need, Lord, as they uh, express you, God. Lord, as that mother hen, as that mama bear and lioness, and as that nursing mother, God, I pray, Lord, for them as they express that to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Another hand for them. Thank you. And now we transition to a moment of a, a special reach focus moment where I'd like to invite up our executive pastor, Michael Wells. And we have with us today the executive director of SIL, Dr. Michelle Quimonier. Let's welcome them up now. Yeah.
Welcome. Thanks, you guys. Uh, let you have a chance to, Michael, to interview Michelle. All right. Well, we're just excited he's here with us. I've had the opportunity to get to uh, know him the last couple years being on the board with him. And uh, tell us a little bit about SIL and how it's related to Wycliffe. Thank you. Um, SIL was started as a small summer institute. That's why you hear the acronym SIL. But SIL has nothing to do with the summer organization today. It's actually a global organization that seeks to help the peoples without God's word in their own languages, to see their languages developed, to see God's word translated into those languages, and to promote literacy and education so that everybody can flourish in God's word. SIL is known all around the world, but in places like, like the USA, you would hear a bit more of Wycliffe because Wycliffe has traditionally recruited people, raised resources in terms of money and prayer in order to send people out to serve into SIL. It's a neat history and tradition that we've had, and it's neat to have you leading it. Tell us a little bit about your journey from starting in Cameroon to leading 4,000-plus missionaries. Yeah, long history. But uh, in a few words, I would say that I grew up in a non-Christian family where African traditional religion was practiced and it was during my years as a student in the university that I, I came in contact with the gospel and became a believer and through my process, the process of growing as a believer coming from that background I realized how important God's word was in helping me to shape my values, my worldview and so on and that is why I've come to appreciate the deep uh, importance for each person to have God's word in the language that they truly understand and uh, interact with. And tell us a little bit about the Calvary connection in your journey as well. Uh, some of us might be familiar with someone you've run yes, into. Yes, I would say that Calvary, uh, in a way that you may not imagine, has played a key role in who I am today. Uh, in the sense that I, 30 years ago, I was a master's student in, my, student in my own country studying linguistics. And it happened that the university lacked a professor of syntax at that time. And somebody stepped out from SIL in order to come be a, a syntax professor. And guess who that person was? It was John Waters. And John Waters happened to be somebody who had lived in Cameroon as a missionary studied a Cameroonian language called Ejagam, translated the word of God into that language. And while we as Cameroonians would use our own mother tongues to find how to study, I mean to figure out how to study syntax, he would just use Ejagam with the same kind of expertise. And that challenged me to wonder why would somebody leave his country and come and settle in a place like that? And I realized it was all about God's love for the people, God's love for the Ejagam people. And he was able to invest his life and all of what he was in order to go and serve those people. And that, that really challenged me and continues to inspire me until today in what I get to do in this ministry. It's neat, too, that you are now leading SIL as uh, John did at one point as well. And one of the things that's neat about John's legacy is uh, his vision 2025, which is to see a Bible translation started in every language that needs one by 2025. And we're about 20 years into that. So tell us, how are things going? Yeah, I would say that, again, uh, John Waters has been very instrumental in casting a vision, which at the, 
at the threshold of the of the 21st century really energized all the bible translation organizations to see that by the year 2025 something would be happening in any language in the world that still needs god's word and around that time in 1999 when john cast this vision we had about 3000 language groups or people groups around the world with no access to god's word but about 20 years after that vision with the effort of all the organizations around the, uh, that are involved in translation today we have only about 1600 language groups remaining which means that over the past uh, 20 years 1400 people groups have been engaged with god's word this is untold this is unheard of in the whole history of god's i mean on god's movement in bible translation and this is all to the to the glory of the lord himself and also to thank you all for the part that you've played in this by sending people like john and the robinsons and many others out yeah it's uh, awesome to see that partnership we're so grateful for you and your role and uh we just appreciate that uh, ongoing just passion that you have to reach the minority language communities of the world and so uh Michelle will be in the lobby afterward if you want to meet him and talk more about it. But we just uh, wanted to thank you so much for your service there and give him a Calvary warm welcome. Thank you very much. I just, uh, we're going to pray for our offering in a moment and, and, and I want to pray for Michelle. But like, I want you guys to understand the significance of, of having him here with us. It's an incredible organization that he is leading, and it's so amazing to see, and, and he'll be humble about it, I'm sure, but it's just so amazing to see what God is doing through these 4,000-plus missionaries around the world, translating God's word into the languages of these people. and. Uh, I think we're just so blessed to have him here. So I encourage you to maybe to, you know, to try and seek him out and spend some time in the lobby getting to know him a little bit more. Uh, and so I want to pray for him. And I think it's important for us even as we give, we remember we're giving to things just like our general fund here uh, at Calvary Church. But also as we give towards reach, towards missions around the world and we support all these individual missionary families that we have but we also like last week we talked about europe and greater europe mission and, and this week we're here talking about wickliffe and sil and supporting these agencies and the work that they're doing and the way they're supporting them so i just encourage us to have a heart for that as well and the people that bring leadership to that like michelle so we're grateful for you and i would like to pray for you now and pray for our offering and and, and as we do that just i want to encourage us to be remembering also our call, um, uh, uh, our call of praying for God to continue to send more missionaries. That our call, that 1002 prayer, Luke 102, the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. So let's ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into the harvest. So we pray that with you, Michelle, today. Okay, so let's, let's pray together as the ushers come forward. Heavenly Father, we uh, are so grateful, Lord, so grateful for the leadership of Michelle and John Waters and others who have brought leadership to this organization and this agency and to the many, many missionaries around the world that are doing that frontline work and the people supporting them as well. God, I pray that you would continue to send more workers into that harvest and that many people, even here and now, maybe in their minds right now, God, you are nudging at them that they should go. 
And Lord, I pray that we would be willing to go. We would be willing to pray and to give, God. So Lord, I pray for Michelle and his family and his leadership. Give him wisdom. Give him courage, God, in all that he does. Uh, we pray a special blessing upon him and his family, Lord Jesus. And I pray now for us as we give. May we give with grateful hearts, God, with joy-filled hearts, and that we'd be excited to see then what you would do with that offering, God, that you would do great things with it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the offering is passed, we'll be continue to sing and worship. And after the offering comes by, you can feel free to visit the tables around the room to take communion or to receive prayer at the prayer points as well. Thanks. Thanks.